Well, good morning. Glad to have all of you with us this morning. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you, those that are joining us online. Glad to have you with us. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Today's message is entitled, Serving and Loving Like Jesus. And if you like to take notes, you'll see in your bulletin, we've got a spot for you to follow along with some fill-in-the-blanks and opportunity for you to maybe write some things down if you would like to. We've been going through verse by verse through the Gospel of John. Starting with John chapter 12, we entered into the last six days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. Last week in John 13, we saw Jesus do something unexpected. As Jesus sat with his disciples at the Last Supper, we read back in John 13, verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God. Now, stop right there. Jesus, knowing that he has all power, all authority, knowing where he's from, knowing where he's headed, he's going to get up and do something. Now, think about this for a moment. If you were in Jesus' shoes, if you knew that you had all power and all authority from God the Father, you knew you came from God the Father, you're going to God the Father, what would you do? With that privilege. Because if it were me, then it might read Jesus. Sorry, if it was me, it would read Jared. Knowing that he had all power and authority from God the Father, he got up and he got a double helping of mashed potatoes. Or perhaps Jared got up and he made a wonderful palace to, to live in and be served in, right? Because I so naturally look to serve myself. But Jesus, in the midst of knowing all the power and authority that he had, knowing he came from God the Father, knowing he's going to God the Father, he gets up and he washes some stinky feet. That's, that's who Jesus is. You see, he, in his power, your first fill in the blank, he knelt down to serve others rather than rise up to serve himself. Jesus, the ultimate servant, and this foot-washing experience, this, this represented how Jesus spiritually washes all of us with his blood and cleanses us of our own sin. But there at that night in that upper room, he washes disciples' feet, not just because nobody else would do it, but because he wanted to show them that he came to serve, not be served. Now in John 13, we're going to pick up in verses 12 through 17, we read about an example to follow. John chapter 13, verse 12, it says, So, when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, he humbled himself and he served his disciples. And if he served and humbled himself, then how much more should we humble ourselves and serve one another? You see, this passage, as we continue to go through it, it's going to teach us several things about serving others. And your next fill in the blank, the first thing about serving others is it's a command. Jesus commands us to serve one another. He said in verse 15, the whole reason he gave the example 
of washing the disciples' feet was for them to be like him, for us to follow in his footsteps, to serve as he served. We read in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, where it says, But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. One of the many things that I love about Jesus is that he didn't simply command us to serve others, but he modeled it both in washing the disciples' feet, but also in humbling himself, becoming a man, dying on the cross, taking that, that, the mocking, the, the, the beating, all, the humiliation, everything for us. And from this passage, we see that serving others is both humbling and it's the path to greatness. Serving others is humbling, but it's also the path to greatness. You see, Jesus, as he humbled himself, he laid his life down, and yet Jesus also teaches that God exalts the humble. He lifts up the humble, Jesus being the perfect example of that. We keep mentioning that passage in Philippians chapter 2, both in our sermons on Sundays and the life group homework, because this whole theme in John of Jesus serving, of Jesus laying down his life, it just goes back to that passage of, of laying down how he left his throne. He came down to earth and he laid his life down for us. And yet, Jesus says that in eternity, he's going to be exalted and lifted up. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus continues in John chapter 13, verse 16. It says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus tells us that serving others brings blessing or happiness. Serving others brings blessing or happiness. The idea of this blessing is not, well, Lord, I served people today, so I want a new car. That would be pretty nice, but that's not how it works, right? The way that that word blessing is translated just means happy. And so the meaning is more, okay, Lord, I served somebody today, and I actually kind of enjoyed it. I felt good about myself. I, I felt joyful in it. And so Jesus specifically tells us that we are blessed if we serve others. We are happy if we serve others. You see, one of the best medicines for depression and anxiety is to serve others. It gets our eyes off of ourselves, our eyes off of our own circumstances, and onto his will for us. Which brings us to the next point. We learn that serving others is serving Jesus. Serving others is serving Jesus. Jesus tells us of how he will judge the nations in the end. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, then the righteous will answer him, talking about himself to me, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, 
Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. You see, when we serve others, Jesus takes it personally. We serve others and Jesus says, you did that to me. That's pretty amazing. On a side note, that also means that Jesus identifies with us so closely as his body, the bride, that when somebody takes care of you, Jesus says, that's like taking care of me. Because he cares about you so much as his bride. Also from this passage here in Matthew, we see that serving others is practical. Serving others is practical. The disciples had dirty feet, so he washed them. Here, the righteous, in Matthew 25, they served by feeding the hungry, by being hospitable, or visiting those that were suffering. When we serve others, we just simply look for practical ways to meet their needs, to serve them, to bless them, to love on them. It doesn't have to be fancy, is what I'm getting at. Serving others doesn't have to be fancy. It's just very practical. One more point before moving on from this idea of serving. Serving others should be out of obedience, not manipulation. Serving others should be out of obedience, not manipulation. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 38, He said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus was all about his Father's business, his Father's will. There will always be needs in this world. There will always be opportunities to serve. And unfortunately, there will always be somebody who thinks you never do enough. There's always going to be somebody who thinks you never do enough, even in the case of Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus went to a pool where the sick people would congregate and they'd wait for the waters to be stirred and they'd all try to jump in the water first and try to get healed. Well, Jesus went there, he picked out one dude, and he healed him, and then he left. What about the rest of them? There was a whole herd of people there who were sick, who were broken, who were, who were in pain. In John chapter 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000 from that single lunchbox, he tried, the, the crowd, they tried to take Jesus and make him their king so that he could deliver them from Rome. Jesus got out of there so fast that he walked on water to do it. He wanted nothing to do with their plans. And then when they finally found him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 6, later on, the multitude caught up to him and they asked him, well, could you just perform a sign for us so that we know we need to believe in you and that you are who you say you are? As if the lunchbox into the buffet wasn't enough. They wanted another sign. They wanted another miracle. And you know what? Jesus didn't give them one. He taught them, but he didn't give them another miracle. You see, being a servant doesn't mean that we become a spiritual doormat for people. The key is serving as God leads us, rather than serving as people demand us. Jesus is the ultimate servant, and he knew when to say no to the world, which enabled him to say yes to the Father. That left some people upset. It left other people still in need. But it kept Jesus in the center of God's will. And when you and I want to serve like Jesus, it doesn't mean that we try to do everything. It means that we sit down and we seek the Lord. And we say, Lord, what are you putting my name on? And 
if you're anything like me, you need to do this a lot. Because I struggle with this. I struggle with it in the sense that I put my own name on things. It's not even other people guilting me into it. I guilt myself into it. I should probably do everything. (laughs) And I have to stop and say, okay, Lord, help me to know what you're calling me to do. What are you putting my name on? And Lord, help me to trust you with the things that I see could be done, but maybe don't have my name on it. And I'm going to trust the Lord to take care of those needs. Now, picking up in verses 18 through 30, we read how Jesus reveals his betrayer. Verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus is saying, one of you, 12 disciples, here at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me. And Jesus says, I want to tell you that I know it's going to happen, so that when it does happen and all this you know, blows over, you'll remember, oh yeah, he knew it was coming. Maybe Jesus really was in control this whole time. It wasn't a surprise for him. Jesus continues, most assuredly, I say to you, in verse 20, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. It's amazing to me that when Jesus reveals, one of you will betray me, What's amazing to me is that the disciples had no clue who he was talking about. It's not just because the disciples were pretty thick. We talked about that earlier. But they didn't know who he was talking about because Jesus loved each of his disciples and treated them all well, even Judas. You see, in Jesus' ministry, Judas wasn't always picked last. He wasn't always put on bathroom cleaning duty. Judas wasn't treated as second class. Jesus loved Judas and even gave him the honorable position of treasurer to the point that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they didn't all look like, yeah, Judas, we hate that guy. They didn't know because Jesus treated Judas like one of them. You know, it was Jesus' love and kindness that confused the disciples but was also a ministry to Judas. You see, Jesus would remind us in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. In the New International Version, it would say, Do we forget that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And that was Jesus' heart, believe it or not, even towards Judas. Jesus gave Judas every opportunity to repent and believe by treating him with love, treating him as one of the family. And so they didn't know who it was. But this reminds us, your next fill in the blank, blessing in life does not equate to being right with God. Blessing in life does not equate to being right with God. You see, there are some who look at their lives and they think, well, God must be pleased with me because my life is good. Everything's blessed. I mean, I'm so happy. 
everything's going really well. So surely God's okay with me. And I've heard people tell me that when I try to preach the gospel to them. And they say, I don't think I need that. Because my life is good. And so God must be pleased with me. Look at all the things he's blessed me with. Judas could have thought, I'm one of the 12 disciples. I'm the treasurer. Jesus treats me well. And yet, Judas was taking some off the top of that treasury, taking some off the top for himself and putting it in his own pocket. And perhaps he made excuses. Oh, that's not a big deal. Like I said, I'm one of the 12. Surely God doesn't care about this little issue because my life is going well. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. You see, God, His blessings are based on His goodness, not our own. Don't measure your relationship with God based on your happiness in life. Measure your relationship with God by His Word, by the Bible. So again, all the disciples are there having a nice Passover meal with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, the conversation takes a turn and Jesus says, by the way, one of you will betray me. That might have taken an awkward moment there as the disciples looked around and wondered, what was he talking about? Now, verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. This was John. John the disciple calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 24, Simon Peter, therefore, he motioned to him, to John, to ask who it was of whom Jesus spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And, having dipped the bread, Jesus gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. After Judas took the bread, Satan entered into Judas. You see, because Judas had not trusted in Jesus, you might say that his heart was vacant. It was empty, able for, for, available for Satan to take control. And some Christians wonder, can Christians be demon-possessed? Can, it, can a demon or Satan himself take possession of me as a believer? We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who's the he who is in you? It's Jesus, right? Who's the he who is in the world? Say, boo, right? We don't like him. But that's what it's talking about here. And the idea is that if you've put your faith in Jesus, then Jesus is inside of you. Your heart is filled with the Holy Spirit. It cannot be occupied by Satan. You might say your heart has a no vacancy sign, right? Because Jesus is in you. In spiritual attack, in spiritual battles, we don't muster our strength and try to fight against the enemy. We simply look to Jesus who is our victory. In other words, the best way to fight the darkness is to turn on the light. That's your next fill in the blank. The best way to fight the darkness is to turn on the light. When we seek Jesus, when we've believed in him, Satan cannot take control of us. And even when you're feeling alone, 
you feel like God's not with you, you don't stand on your feelings. If you do, that's going to be terrible. But we stand on the Word of God. We stand on the Word of God and we look to Him and we say, Lord, I don't feel like you're close. I don't feel like you're with me, but your Word says that you are. Your Word says that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. So I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to believe in you. And so Satan enters Judas. And Jesus has just told Peter and John, Judas, he's the one. He's the one who will betray me. Then, verse 27 continues, Jesus said to Judas, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason Jesus had said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so, having received the piece of bread, Judas went out immediately, and it was night. Don't miss the fact that as Satan enters into Judas, Jesus then gives him a command. Go do your thing. And he does it. To me, just another subtle reminder that Jesus is in control. Even Satan has to submit to the Lord. And what Satan meant for evil, God's going to use for good. What Satan meant for evil in betraying Jesus, Jesus says, I can use that. I can use that as I bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now in verses 31 through 38, we read about loving like Jesus. Verse 31, it says, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Kind of wordy, right? But the point is, God's going to be glorified. God the Father, God the Son, God the Son, God the Father, they're all going to be glorified in this moment. And what's interesting to me is that this is perhaps the darkest time in human history as Jesus, the only one who was righteous, the only one who is sinless, he's about to be betrayed. He's about to be abandoned by those closest to him. He's about to be put on a fake trial, lied about, mocked, beaten, humiliated, crucified, buried. And yet, in the midst of all of that darkness, Jesus says, this is it. This is the time of our glorification. You see, it was in this time of our sin and depravity that Jesus gets to demonstrate his love for us. We read that in Romans 5.8 where Paul says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so here in this moment, as Judas goes to do his dirty work, as the disciples are about to proclaim, they'll never leave him, they'll even die for him, but they won't, not yet. Jesus says, in this time, in this depravity of these people who can't even uphold their word, they can't stand with me, that's when I'm going to stand up for them. Isn't that amazing? That's the God that we have. The God that looks at us in our worst moment. And God says, I'm going to fix that for you. I'm going to stand up on your behalf. I'm going to be the righteous person that you were supposed to be. I'm going to pay the sacrifice that you owe because you failed in obeying me. 
And Jesus says, that is going to bring glory to the Father. And it's going to bring glory to the Son. And we're going to glorify each other in this time. Verse 33. Jesus says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. He had already said this phrase to the Jews when he was out in public. And he said, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And they're like, where's he going to go? Rome? Italy? Where's, where's, where's he going? And now he's saying it to the disciples. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And he's talking about his death and how they couldn't follow him yet. Verse 34 Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The command to love one another is not a new command. It's in the Old Testament. It was already there. But the thing that is new is that Jesus said, you love one another as I have loved you. You see, that makes the commandment new. That's why when we read about Jesus talking with the Pharisees, they're like, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? You punched me, I'll punch you harder. That's just how it works, right? That's, that's real. That's love right there. And Jesus says, no, let's talk about that. And here, Jesus says, this is a new commandment because I'm telling you to love others as I have loved you. Do you remember back in John 13, verse 1? Last week, we read it, where Jesus was said to have loved his disciples to the end, to the uttermost. You see, Jesus loved his disciples even though they were about to betray him, scatter, leave him alone. He loved his disciples before, during, and after their sin and failure. And that's how God wants us to love each other. You see, God wants us to love each other to the end, to the uttermost. This means that God wants us to love others regardless of whether or not they deserve it. God wants us to love others even if they don't love us back. God wants us to love others even after they sin against us or even betray us. And you might say, that's crazy. I would say, you're right. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. But that's the love that God has for you and for me. You might say, nobody could do that. And I would say, you're right. Nobody can love like that except Jesus. And that's why we can't love like that apart from Him. That's why Galatians 5.22 starts off with, but the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is love. You see, apart from God, the Holy Spirit, we can't have that love for one another. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11, It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Did you catch that? Again, it's saying you can't love others like Jesus did unless you've been born of Him. Jesus is the one who enables us to have that kind of love. That passage continues in verse 8. It says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. Beloved, 
If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Loving one another is so important to God that Jesus says our love for one another is the defining characteristic of a Christian. Look back in John 13 with me. John 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this, the new commandment, that you love one another, how I have loved you, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, it's, it's not the bumper sticker that identifies us as a Christian. It's not going to church, reading your Bible, singing worship that identifies us as a Christian. It's how we love each other. And that's your next fill in the blank. The identifying mark of a Christian is how he or she loves. That's what identifies us. Oh, they've been with Jesus. They're a disciple of Jesus. Look at the way they love. When you love the parent that ignored you, when you love the child that betrayed you, when you love the spouse that let you down, when you're, you love that coworker that left you high and dry, it's those opportunities that Jesus says, that's what identifies you as mine. That's what identifies you as a believer in Jesus. By loving people to the uttermost. And again, we can only accomplish that type of love by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't rest in our own strength. We seek the Lord and say, Lord, help me to love. Help me to love. With all this talk about love, I think it's important to note your next fill in the blank. Love is a choice, not an emotion. Love is a choice, not an emotion. When you read 1 Corinthians 13, it does not say, love is exciting. Love is fun. Love is not difficult or boring. Right? That's not how that passage starts off. In a struggling relationship, you might hear somebody say, I just don't love them anymore. I just don't love them anymore. Well, that's not love as Jesus defines it. That's an emotion. That's what they're talking about. They don't have the emotion that they used to have. But they're not talking about love as God defines it. When we love others, we can love regardless of how we feel. Because it's a choice, not an emotion. We can love even when it's difficult because it's a choice, not an emotion. Love is serving others even when you don't feel like it. So back to our text, Jesus has given this new commandment that the disciples love one another as he loved them. And then Peter goes back to something Jesus said earlier. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Remember he said, where I go, you cannot come. And Peter says, Okay, love each other. Yeah, yeah. Wait, where are you going, Lord? What, what are you thinking? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter's thinking, You said that already, but where are you going? That doesn't answer my question. You see, it wasn't, Peter, it wasn't that Peter could never follow Jesus, but it wasn't his time yet. It wasn't yet. Because, again, Jesus was speaking about his death, and Peter began to catch on. Look at verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow until you have denied me three times. In other words, the sun won't come up until you've denied me three times. Peter had good intentions. He really believed that he was willing to die for Jesus, to die with Jesus. But when Jesus was arrested, Peter chickened out. Luke gives us a little more detail here. In Luke 22, verse 31 and 32, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And isn't that true for all of us? He knows us better than we know ourselves. But in light of Peter's upcoming denial, Jesus says something incredible. Jesus says, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Think about that. Jesus is looking past the sin that hadn't even been committed yet. And he says, Peter, I've got a job for you to fulfill. And not just any job, but a leadership role. I want you to strengthen your brethren. I want you to lift your brothers up. Lift them up in the faith. I don't know about you, but if I'm in Peter's shoes, and I come crawling back to the disciples after I denied I even knew Jesus three times, even when that little servant girl says, aren't you the one that was with Jesus? You're like, no, bleep, bleep. And you're cursing, trying to convince them. No, really, I'm not the guy you think I am. I come back to the disciples, and I don't even feel worthy to shine the other disciples' shoes. And yet Jesus says, when you come back, when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. You see, we don't serve because we're worthy to serve the Lord. We serve because he was worthy on our behalf. Peter didn't come back to the Lord and strengthen his brethren because Peter was some amazing, awesome Christian guy. He came back because of God's mercy and grace and love. And he strengthened his brethren because that's Jesus' heart for us, to love and to serve. So you might be sitting here thinking, all this is great, but I'm not worthy enough to serve others. I'm not worthy enough to love others. I'm not worthy enough to represent Jesus. And I would say, you're right, you're not. And yet Jesus has called us anyway. And he's called you son. He's called you daughter. And he says, you are mine. And I want to fill you with my spirit. I want to empower you with my heart so that you can be my hands and my feet and my voice to a dark and lost world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that Jesus looks past your sin, even past the sins you haven't even committed yet, past your failures, and Jesus says, I've got a job for you to do. And I'm going to enable you to do it. You see, we serve in spite of our weakness, in spite of our failures. To Peter's credit, he would eventually give his life for Jesus. It wouldn't be for some 35 years later or so. When church history tells us Peter was crucified in Rome because he continued to preach Jesus when they told him not to. But Peter, he didn't feel worthy to die in the same manner in which his Lord died. And so at his request, he was crucified upside down. 
as he gave his ultimate sacrifice for his faith in Jesus. One final thought before we finish up for the day. Jesus had perfect love for others, yet he was still betrayed by Judas. He was still rejected by many. The crowd still cried out for his crucifixion. You see, when we love others as Christ loves us, it does not mean every relationship in our lives will be restored. A relationship is dependent upon both sides, right? Two people. And so, your last fill in the blank. Our job is not to restore every relationship in our life. Our job is to love them like Jesus loves us, unconditionally. And we leave the rest up to Him. Leave the rest up to the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much that You left Your throne You left heaven and you came to the earth. Lord, you became flesh. And Lord, you dwelt among us. Lord, thank you that you loved us enough to do that. You loved us enough to be lifted up on the cross in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our depravity. Lord, you looked at us and you said, I'm going to stand where they cannot. Lord, thank you for the salvation that you have brought to the world. Lord, for anybody here or listening online that has not yet put their faith in you, not yet trusted you as their Lord and Savior, God, would today be that day? Would they look to you and say, Lord, I don't deserve you. Lord, I deserve punishment in hell. But God, you've paid for my sins on the cross. Lord, I trust in you that you're going to take me to heaven the day that I die, not because I'm worthy, but because, Lord, you are worthy. Lord, we ask as your church, would you please fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit? God, would you bear that fruit of love in our lives? Would you give us a heart of a servant who would look at those around us, look at those opportunities that we see, and we say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, how can I represent you to my family, to my neighbor, to my coworker. God, how can we serve others, love others in your name? Lord, thank you for giving us a role in your plan of salvation, a role in your eternal kingdom, despite the fact that we're all broken. Lord, that just shows how good And how powerful you are. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. And we give our lives to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me. Let's worship together. If we can pray for you for anything, there's some men up forward, up front, that would love to pray for you. We love you. Know that Jesus loves you. He cares for you. And not only that, but he wants to use you for his kingdom. As you go, say hi to somebody on the way out. God bless you. Have a great week. See you next time.